0: Hello, and welcome to season four of the E3 podcast, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This season, we're going to talk about building science, female entrepreneurship, and the built environment. Prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to the E3 podcast. We're actually going to do a special podcast, a special release here because I had someone reach out to me with a specific question that I feel like we answer all the time Uh, the question was i'm in the early stages of looking for raw land and building a home that follows in part or full the net zero high performance design prices have ballooned significantly for a four bedroom three bathroom home At this point, I'm interested in understanding what options exist for partially implementing net zero concepts into a more traditional build, how different aspects of net zero homes contribute to build costs, and if there are options to stagger the stages of a build across a longer period of time to reduce the upfront price. I'm hoping to understand the extent and flexibility of working with an architect or design professional can offer when building a new home, or at least get a better handle on where an architect can add value to the process. So instead of reaching back out to this person and answering the question, like I usually do individually, I got a couple of my cool friends to pop on the podcast with me and go through it. So uh, today, Mike, Bob and Jay are on, so I'm going to let you guys introduce yourself, remind everybody on here if they don't know who you are already, who you are, and what you're up to. So Mike, give us a short intro.
1: Thanks, thanks Emily. Hopefully you can edit out some of my stuttering. I'm uh, Mike Mays. I'm a residential designer in Maine. Um, I'm not an architect, but I do similar work. I also uh, write about building science for a few local and national magazines.
0: Awesome. Jay, tell us who you are, what you've been up to.
2: I am Jay Karoli. I'm an architect in Northern Vermont, uh, Great Blue Heron Studio Architects, and I do primarily uh, single-family residential work. Happy to be here talking to you guys.
0: And last but not least, cool kid Robert Swinburne, if you don't know who he is already.
3: I'm Bob Swinburne. I'm an architect in Southern Vermont. I do high performance homes, pretty good houses, passive houses, um, with a very select few high quality builders.
0: All right, so uh, everybody on here today is a design professional. We all pretty much follow the pretty good house uh, mantra. That definitely goes to net zero. You can build a net zero house, a passive house, a pretty good house. But your question specifically was about, you know, how we design in or implement in some of those concepts. Um, And Mike and I recently, finished writing the Pretty Good House book. It's available for pre-order. Follow the link if you haven't gotten that one yet. It will be out in June once the industry finds some paper uh, and can physically publish it. But um, let's, let's touch a little bit first on um, what an architect or design professional brings to the process. Like what value does it add to um, one of the original PGH concepts is build a team, right? Design professionals, homeowners, and and your builder are all as part of the team. So let's talk about that a little bit. Mike, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience of, you know, what value it brings to the process?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess I I like to think of it as every project that's, Uh, uh, needs a team and the team basically represents or the team is represented by a three-legged stool so the stool is the client who is primarily responsible for funding and making the big decisions Um, the builder who is actually building the project and the designer who's sort of you know um, helping the client through the planning process now anybody can do all three of those not not anybody but some people can, can do two or three of those roles. Often each of those roles are, are handled by multiple people. It really depends on the scale of the project and the skills and talents of the team. But uh, no matter what, somebody is going to design the project. Um, um, designing means sort of take, figuring out what you're starting with, whether it's raw land or an existing house, or if it's not a house, if it's a piece of furniture, it's, it's what are the needs. Um, and, and then you sort of work through things that have to happen in order to get that ready for construction. If you just jump straight into construction, then you're really kind of flying blind and you may end up with a lot of surprises that you're not expecting.
0: I always, in my projects, ask the client to bring the builder on during the design process, because I think that the builder adds a lot of value to um, exactly the question of how you're going to build it. And, you know, as an architect, we have all designed a full set of plans that somebody has put out to bid, and you get six different budgets back. And you know they're going to build it the way they know how to build it, or they're going to price it to build it the way you drew it, which maybe isn't their standard. Um, and so it's going to be more expensive. Um, it's not a great process. The builder at that point doesn't know, you know, what is important to the client, and so you know this whole idea with the architect being involved or a design professional being involved with the homeowner is that one, we've done this a number of times, right? It's not the first house we've designed. We've designed several houses every year. We've learned things we've learned part of the process. It's like any trade, you just get better at it, the more practice that you have. Um, but we've been taught to critically think through the process too. So, um, I don't know about any of you guys, but have any of you ever designed a house with a client that had no budget at all?
3: I've done projects where I don't know the budget, um, which is a really bad thing to do. And, you know, I do not recommend it. Um, And I've done projects where it turns out the client had a lot more money than they originally said. Um, You know, I did a project recently, the people were cutting costs, cutting corners, you know, it's just became a somewhat miserable process. And then two years later, they, they hired somebody else to double the size of their house, which was apparently not big enough. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've done projects where I, I just had no sense of the budget, um, because Communication was not open
0: so so generally there's a budget involved you know somebody comes to you and they say you know this is this is what our budget is. Um, but I think one of the failings in our industry is letting people tell us what it costs to build something um, versus the things that pretty good house are building net zero um, sure there are definitely things that are premium ads but there are also just good, processes for climate zones where we live, Vermont and Maine, that you should just do it that way because it's going to make a big difference on the longevity of the structure and also what it costs to live in and be comfortable in the space. Um, And so as a design professional, right, it's hard to say that you don't need us. to help you think through that process. You know, what are what are some of the other things that you think a design professional adds to the process? Like, wh- why is it worth us figuring it out before it gets to construction?
2: Best answer to that is that it's a lot easier and a lot less expensive for me to draw it um, with, with a pencil and a, and a piece of paper than for you to build it with stone and steel and wood. And so if we can, and then we can draw it and erase it as many times as you like so that we can find that sweet spot that, that answers all your questions and gives you the home that you're looking for. So I, I, you know, in my process, more than 50% of the process is just that initial design. It's, you know, so there's some standard phases that we talk about pre-design schematic design design development and and all of that is is the bulk of the work but then once we prepare the construction documents the drawings that you're going to use to either bid or construct the process the project that process continues because we've done it all ahead of time we've worked through it we have an intent that's been developed through working with the client and the contractor and and if And so, and so to bring that forward until you're having, you know, until you're making your first meal in your in your new kitchen, um, in your new house, then that intent gets lost and people start scrambling.
1: Or just that reminds me of 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 one way I describe what I do is I'm a professional communicator. It's sort of trying to draw out of people what's important to them, which they may not have the words for or know. what's important so it's part of my job to figure out what's important uh to them incorporate what's important to me what's required by building codes etc um and then through drawings and writing and meetings but you know show them what they're going to get so they're not surprised at the end they may be pleasantly surprised but i i i hate it when at the end of the project somebody says oh i didn't realize it was going to look like that and like uh, they may not mean that as an insult, but like if I did my job, then they would know that's what what it would look like.
0: You know, it's our job to listen to you to find out what the problem is you're actually trying to solve. You know, you as a client, and what it, we hear a lot in the field is, "Oh, I need 2,500 square feet, and I need three bedrooms and two and a half baths because that's what the real estate market tells you that you need to." have for resale value. Although I'm not entirely sure why we're constantly building homes for resale value as opposed to building homes we want to live in and stay in and that are sustainable for, you know, hundreds of of years um, that solve issues and that there isn't probably somebody else out there who might have similar needs as you. So we don't all actually want 2,500 square feet, three bedrooms, two and a half baths. As design professionals, it's our job to build what you need and no more. And we and we talk through that uh, through the entire process to find out what we're actually solving for, what you actually need, and how we build you Maybe you do need 2,500 square feet. Maybe you need 4,000 square feet and you've got five people living with you and you have uh, two businesses at home. I don't know, you know what the answer is um, to, to solve your problem. But if you don't think that you can afford to hire a design professional, you know, there's modular and pre designed plans that are also built to specifics for your climate zone. So, um, Bob, I know aside from some of the really custom boutique uh, tailored projects that you've been working on with a couple of local builders, you also have Vermont Simple House.
3: Yeah, I I, I was gonna um, jump in and push back a little on the idea that everybody needs a full design process and a design professional involved. plenty of people there are plenty of people out there for whom that they're just not not that discerning you know they 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 can pull a plan out of the back of a magazine um you know as long as they've got a really good builder involved um they should be fine you know they maybe they don't know a really good builder is going to have some design sense anyway and help and you know be able to lead that conversation a little bit um but you know if you're building a camp on the lake there's plenty of uh, simple little plans that really you know are oriented towards the water it can work perfectly fine um, and so my Vermont simple house plans are they're designed with flexibility you know not you can flip the plans you can move things around in them they're you know basic high quality detailing and high quality quality design in that, you know, with every client that comes along, you find there's a lot of, you hear a lot of the same things. You solve the problem the same way you did for the last client because it works so well. So you, I try to pull a lot of that, you know, years and years, uh oh, decades at this point of experience into this set of plans. And hopefully they are better than what you would normally get out there. Just a little pushback back against the idea that every house needs to be custom and, um, have a design professional involved start to finish.
1: Whether or not the plan is fully custom, I think a, a skilled, a, a designer architect skilled in designing smaller houses uh, can, can bring a lot of value. I um, I get a lot of clients who give me, who, who, who come with plans they've developed, and this is probably uh, the only plan they've ever drawn, so they love it. There's always problems with it. They always Tell me to do what I I think ignored their plan if I want to. And then I ignore it and, and they get mad. But anyway, so like just in, in this past week, I had a client share a plan that included a two-car garage. It's it, it's a necessity for the project, and the garage is 18 feet square. It's a very tight lot. So 18 feet square is what fits. It fits their miniature car, but that's that's not a two-car garage. And another client. Uh, shared shared a, uh, a one story plan that had a bedroom in the middle of the house with no windows because they don't care about windows in their bedroom, and it's like that's just a basic that's just a basic design thing. So, so anyway, my my point is is someone skilled at designing smaller houses? Every square foot is unequal. equal, so especially with construction costs as expensive as they are, you see a lot of bad plans. So you may think you need 2,500 square, square feet at 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 whatever cost per square foot. But you may be able to knock, you know, 20% off that if you have a good design. You know, Bob has recently sh- shared plans that, that have have flexible spaces, you know, Murphy beds and things like that that can can serve di- different functions. You know, if you do that, then you may be able to reduce your square footage and still keep a very high quality design. So, so you're basically investing in in the design instead of investing in this amorphous concept of square footage.
0: What's the most important thing that you should add that you should never skip on when building a new house, no matter what you're doing?
3: I think the function, I mean, you start with a function that has to be hundred percent. If you're starting from scratch, there's really no excuse for, for, um, the function of the house to not be as perfect as possible, unless the perfect function really would necessitate, say a 2,500 square foot house but the budget is really only there for 1500
0: and if the budget is only there for 1500 bob but that doesn't solve the budget is your recommendation that they buy an existing house or uh where do you send people when the budget doesn't align with the actual needs for the family
3: it's a it's an ongoing discussion which happens on paper as jay was saying before um, as opposed to while you're building it, um, and you might, you know, on paper realize you get to the point where no, I, I really can't, I can't make you be able to afford this house. That's my perspective as an architect, but from the client's perspective, um, they might have to ditch their plans to build a house. Honestly, if they've done due diligence, they've hired a design design professional. Um, they you know at a certain point that decision sometimes has to be made.
0: Jay when you're when you have somebody who wants to add net zero concepts to a traditional build what's what's the first thing that you recommend that they do um if if they're doing something incremental?
2: I want to go back before before I go there because I want to build on what Bob was saying about the function of you know if, if the function is is the first thing that we're that we're getting to that what a design professional can provide is, is that interpretation of what you come with and you, you know, we've all kind of said it, you know, you need 2,500 square feet, you need a two car garage. So you come with these, this list of things that, that, that you want. And as design professionals, what we're going to do is interpret what you're saying into a reality because because just saying, you know, I want a living room, and dining room, kitchen, two-car garage, and you you stack those up a million different ways. But without somebody who can put it together in a in a cohesive way that flows and 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 performs the functions on a day-to-day basis, so that the sun, you know, if you've got the right site, can can rise at your bedroom, um, and then everything else flows throughout the house with that. Then then. Um, then that interpretation of, of what you want and need, I think is what you get from your design professionals.
0: So when you have somebody who is looking to just make incremental improvements, so from traditional build to an incremental improvement, what's, what's the first thing that you recommend that they always do, or, or how do you, how do you respond to their phasing of construction? You know, like, well, what do you tell them? Okay, do this, but you can hold on that. Or this is a luxury.
2: It still all has to happen on day one. We have to know where we're headed. So if you say, okay, I want it to be here, but I can't get there when I start, we need to know where you're headed because trying to, I think Mike told a story the other day about somebody who came to him after they would I don't know if they'd started CDs and they thought, oh, well, let's consult to, to make this now a high performance house. It's too late. You've missed the boat. And, and so you need, you need to start on day one, uh, with your goals, even if it's inc- incremental.
0: Yeah. I would definitely agree with that. We've had people who have approached us with a, with a plan that they already have, um, either they found on the internet, um, or they, they drew themselves, right? Like they've, they've started with a plan that, that they've already, that they've already drawn up and then they want to improve the efficiency and not, not that there aren't things that we couldn't do. Right. Um, it generally won't cost you that much to hire a professional to come out and help you site the house on the site. Right. Um, you know, it may cost you a couple hundred bucks. You're not going to pick it up and move it later. So that's money. Well worth spending is, you know, if you can get the orientation, right. So that you get, passive solar, you get sunlight in the rooms that you want to, you make sure that your driveway isn't 400 feet instead of 200 feet. Um, that that's definitely money well spent, um, and can also go into your net zero goals, right? Because if you don't cite it correctly and you don't have a roof for solar, then you're setting yourself up for failure on that front from the beginning if your intention was to do solar and not that you can't do solar on roofs that don't face directly South, but you know, if it's a brand new house and you have a blank raw site that you can, you can work with that. Um, The same, I know uh, if you guys haven't seen it, Bob worked on a house in Vermont where he convinced the uh, owner builder to not put in a dormer, which really uh, improved both the efficiency, of the house, but also made it possible for them to put in solar if they want to. Um, so some of those simple roofline things can, can make a big difference. So, um, but if you come with a plan set, we're, we're limited on, yes, we can, we can do some consulting with your, your builder contractor to talk about how to do better air sealing, um, and how to swap fiberglass insulation, maybe for cellulose, um but if you're changing your whole wall systems and you're changing details and you're changing all of that, that's the part that's really hard. That's the part that your design professional actually gets paid to do. One, they get paid to do a function for you and make your space super functional, but then they also get paid to tell you how to build it most cost effectively with your team. So Mike, you wanted to weigh in on that one.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I think that that's one of my, my favorite uh, pr- pretty good Good house tenants is invest in the envelope. It's just once once the building envelope is constructed, there's very low chance you'll go back in the next 10, 20, 30 years to improve it, um, especially the parts that are tough to reach. Like, like yeah, in the attic, if, it, if there's loose-blown insulation in an attic, maybe you could go back later and blow in an extra six inches. You wouldn't, but you could. But but you'll never go back and add more insulation under the slab. Or if you have a foundation, you'll never go back and add exterior insulation and good drainage. Um, um, you'll never take out mediocre windows. Well, you might take out mediocre mediocre windows to put in good windows and that would be a waste of money. You should just do good windows to start with. So skip on finishes, skip the PV, you know, uh, scale back on landscaping, um, work on landscaping over time, put in cheap kitchen cabinets. You're gonna change the kitchen in 10 or 15 years anyway. You know things like that. I think I think are easier to add or change over time rather than what's what's below the surface of the roof, walls, and ceiling.
3: Well, I, I just wanted to back up the conversation a little bit um, to point out that a design professional can help a client figure out what they want. You know, long before we actually start designing, there's you know feasibility issues. Um, and you know, a good builder can also do that, but a a good, a good design professional really is trained to help identify what the end result should be. You know, help guide through that early process. Then, then you start designing. I'm lucky in that I, I tend to get a lot of clients who are very well researched and very realistic. But I certainly field a lot of calls from people who I have to basically break it to them you a lot, your, your, the amount of money you have in the bank and your goals are so far apart from each other that um, you need to have a serious uh powwow with yourself about those goals.
1: Yeah. It, um I'd say another element that helps people um afford a house up front. And, and it's another good, pretty good house principle is, you know, I think the style today is uh, um. Pu- popular styles often have a million roofs and bump outs and jogs and they just keep throwing things onto the house until it looks good. Whereas the pretty good house approach is basically like the old Volvo ads, it's boxy but good. So if you start with a simple boxy house like an old colonial or an old cape, if you start with a box with the the essential space, it's it's a lot easier to then add on additions which is what they always used to do so starting with so instead of starting with a new house that looks like you already already have a million additions on it start with a boxy house get it right and then add on as as your needs grow and change
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. One of the things that we often will suggest to people is to wait on the PV, but to orient the house to the South or to, you know, this is Maine and living without a garage seems like a terrible thing, but a garage is something that's pretty easy to add on if you plan for it in the future. So, you know, that could be $50,000 or more that you could save an upfront. And if you spend the money in the insulation package, um, you know, in the building envelope, as Mike mentioned, you know. Are you going to save fifty thousand dollars in a year? No, probably not. But if you've cut your your cost of living in the house significantly, then you know you do have a little bit more money. You have something that you can, um, you know, increase the value on. And um, one of the things that I think has been hard in the appraisal of pretty good net zero houses is. People like living in them because they're comfortable, they're healthy, they're durable. And so they don't sell them as frequently, right? So there there aren't quite as many on the market to compare them to. Um, And so that's something that we have to contend with, but also something that we're super proud of is if you love living there and you don't have to spend the cost of, you know, what is it? three to 7% to sell your house as the seller, um, moving costs, right? Whether the cost of moving is you physically paying somebody to move you from one house to the other, or, um, We've all been there, right? How many times have you guys moved? I no longer want to pick up a piece of my furniture and move it. Um, I joked with my mother-in-law. I actually said the next time I move, I'm going to put a for sale sign out in the front yard that says for sale with everything in it. You know, so those are things that we don't take into account. If you're going to move every every five years, then really building just what you need makes sense because, you know, it's going to cost you a bunch of money to move the next time. So having something that's designed by a professional, whether it's pre-designed modular or a custom design, goes a long way in functionality and well-designed spaces. And Mike was talking about boxy, but um, I think the common misconception is that boxy is boring. Um, But there are some really great boxy styles that people come back to over and over and over again. That 1800s farmhouse, it's still popular, you know, modular, um, modular design is, is built off a of square. It's super functional. I mean, how many ranch houses are out, are out there? You know, it's a, it's a square, um, but you can make a square modern. Um, so if you guys are, are looking up at any of these guys on here, if you look at Bob's sugar bush house, it's a rectangle. With some cool add-on stuff to the outside, but it's a it's a modern house. Um, so we need to get rid of the preconceived notion that boxy is boring because boxy is actually super efficient. Fewer jogs, less places for failure of the structure and the insulation. So.
2: Emily, when you're when you're when you're talking about that, it reminds me of um, the 1970s um, passive solar houses that were just really. I don't think I. I mean, there was a lot of things that were bad about it. Not just um, that they weren't they weren't welcoming or to scale or inviting in any way. Um, but I don't I don't think their envelopes were very well constructed typically, and and had a lot of mold and and, and water issues. And um, but they did soak up a lot of sun, and I think more often than not, too much sun probably. Um, and so from the 70s. Fifty years later, um, I think it's all of that building science has come a really long way to say it. It can be comfortable and healthy, and and use the sun in an appropriate way, um, and 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 it can be beautiful. Yeah, I do get I get
3: clients coming to me not knowing the difference between a passive solar house and a passive house um maybe we should address that real quick right here
0: (laughs) yeah go for it Bob okay so back
3: in the 70s and the gas crisis and all that we were there there were a bunch of people particularly in New England I think um starting to do these you know heat my house with the sun type of passive solar houses um and I've certainly worked on a lot of them here in Vermont and yeah, there's moisture issues, there's air sealing issues, there's mold issues. There's a lot of issues, but um, it was kind of a whole movement in this area. And I think the Germans were kind of paying attention. And when gas prices went uh, back down in the United States, everybody dropped it and started um, ignoring all those principles that were starting to be learned during that era. But the Germans said, "Hey, wait a minute, you're on something." And they started applying numbers to things and they really worked through the science and then they came out with passive house, which was a you know a logical evolution. Um, they looked at it much more holistically and they looked at the moisture levels, they looked at you know, they measured things, they developed formulas and so that became passive house which is now returned to um, North America. Um, and it, it, it's very similar to Pretty Good House. And it's, it's basically what the three of us here do, but it's just interesting that evolution where it started in the United States um, seemed to be a good idea to somebody who wasn't in the United States. And you know, now it's coming back and it's, and it's starting to show up in the codes, um, some of the Passive House principles.
1: I think it, I think it's a pretty classic american story that like like we generated this good science with all these flashy ideas like trome walls absorbing energy and 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 gravel gravel subslab zones with that had ducts and you would would run the ductwork through these through these rocks to store heat and you had tons and tons of windows to capture all this free heat it was all kinds of gizmos that worked when everything was perfect but didn't work so well when everything was not perfect so uh so I like joe stewbrick's advice is build tight ventilate right that that, that that's that's uh, the lesson we should have learned that all these all these complicated systems were too prone to not being designed quite right not being implemented quite right and most of those houses were also poorly insulated and or not air sealed at all so now that we know just how important air sealing and insulation is, we can kind of get away with pretty minimal windows um, or carefully placed windows so, because we're not trying to capture every last ounce of sunlight. Um, so I think that's that's the passive aspect. It's, it's kind of a bad name, I think, passive house because, the, because they aren't really passive. They, they have active systems, but they're, they're more passive or simpler than the old mechanical systems of the 70s where you had to flip levers and turn on walls and open and close blinds and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, I I heard something recently that that goes right along with this is that if you're going to have a passive house, right, if you're using that term correctly, so we'll say passive solar, you need to have an active occupant. So the (laughs) occupant needs to actively open the windows, close the shutters, the blinds, turn the mechanical system, change the filters, do all that stuff. But in the United States, we really have passive occupants. So we need to have active houses. And that's, I think the point where a design professional really uh, brings a lot to the table, whether they designed a house that you bought as a plan set or whether they're custom designing you a house is we are designing for a potentially passive occupant. You know, we hear a lot uh, that they want to do low maintenance. They want, you know, to not have to do a lot of the things with it. We're building tight, we're ventilating, right? So we need our active systems, To accommodate for the fact that we're not bringing in wood from, you know, the back 40. We're not opening the windows for ventilation and looking at the monitor to see if nighttime cooling is going to have low enough humidity to cool the house in the summertime or that there's going to be enough sunlight in the sky that has these massive windows to passively heat the slab in our house that we actively closed with shutters or blinds. Uh, so so we're, we're making up for a more passive environment with active solutions to the original passive solar houses Um, because if you've ever been in a double envelope house just like Mike said it's like it had to go through the rocks under the ground and had this vent shaft that went up through the top and it's super scary because they're like fire tinder boxes
1: oh and the mold the mold is everywhere
0: (laughs) we got to cover this dirt floor and we seal all the stuff Mm -hmm. in so I think that's where That's where nowadays with our building materials, the way we build, the way we live in the United States, where it becomes really evident how much a uh, design professional can add to your structure for safety, durability, comfort level, um, and health. Lots of people have spent a lot of time at home for the last two years, so you know, health and indoor air quality and what materials are in this. I mean, that's a, what the living building challenge that we did, Mike, for BS and beer, I think she said she spent, what, a hundred hours just researching products and what was in it. So. I think,
1: I I think, I think it was, it was like 800 or a thousand hours. It It was, it was, it was, it was basically half a year to vet the products for a single house. And that's like, obviously not, not many, many people can afford that, but the rest of us, or those of us dealing with materials can spend the time to know the basics. Uh, your average average homeowner is not going to spend the time to learn the ins and outs of a thousand products.
0: Yeah. And so the takeaway that I get from that is what are we asking this product to do? And what does it have in it in order to accomplish that? Anybody have anything else that they want to add to either, you know, implementing um aspects of pretty good house into traditional building um, or the reason why it's important to work with a design professional, you know, what that adds to the value uh, of the project.
1: Well, I think, I think something most people could appreciate is just it's the, whether or not you have a lot of talent or you're utilitarian as an architect or designer, just it's this it's the sheer, a level of practice. We've all designed hundreds or thousands of houses and had a lot of them built and seen what worked and seen what didn't and worked with a variety of different builders. So just this is our world. We, we design and 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 oversee, or not oversee, but watch construction um, and, and learn from it. Whereas going with a builder who's doing their own designs, they may have some design talent and they may have designed several houses they they may have designed a lot of houses but it's not their sole focus their next job is not dependent on how good is this house designed it may be how how affordably was it built which is valid but just you may be be missing out on on what a design professional brings or if you pick something out of of a magazine just it may not be tailored for the site but but i think i think my point is just that when you've designed a thousand houses um, or whatever it is, you learn a lot of tricks along the way. So it's it's kind of hard to to summarize all that, and, or to even even think of it. But it, but it's just it's 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 plain old repetition. If if it's your first your first omelet you've ever made, or your first time shooting a basketball, like you may be talented, but you're not going to be as good as somebody who's been practicing it for a few decades.
2: My favorite contractors to work with are contractors that like to work with architects, and maybe that's self-serving, but, but it doesn't have to be me. The, the, the best projects that I've seen have been by good builders who know that they're good builders, but know that they need a design professional to help them um, to realize that vision. There are plenty of builders
3: out there who won't work without a design professional. Um, I think that's pretty interesting. In the past 10 or 15 minutes on, you know, just listening to you you all talk, um, I just, I always want to stress simplicity. Um, There's a 10,000 decisions to be made when designing a house. And if I, as as a designer, can eliminate three quarters of those, that's still a lot of decisions. But, um, you know, I can use my experience and a good builder can use their experience to, get rid of so many of those decisions and simplify the process. So it's, you know, we're talking not just about simplifying buildings, you know, build a box, um, but we're talking about simplifying the process. And um, and again, there are plenty of people who don't want to go through that process. It's pretty overwhelming. And if you, you know, I tell my potential clients, um, you probably have no idea of what you're in for, so go talk to one of my previous clients um, and they'll tell you. So, I, I you know, just not everybody's ready for that. And, and I think a lot of people might be better served finding an existing house or um, an existing, you know, a, a stock floor plan and just really hooking up with a good builder. I think good builder is key.
0: Yeah. And so I think what I'll close out with there is, There are so many different ways to build a house. You know, you can build a modular house. You can build one from a plan set. You can build a custom home with a full design team. I think what I would stress to you is it's hard to make it more efficient if it's already been designed. There are some things that you you can do. You're paying somebody to design it on paper who, like Jay said early on, can erase it as many times as you want if the builder has to build it six times with you in the field, or they have to design it in the field, you're paying them their time to design it. So really you're paying the builder to design it, or you're paying a design professional to design it. Um, And the last thing that I would stress is really bring the builder on. If you're going to custom design it, bring the builder on during the design process because that's going to net you the best possible thing. It is much easier to design to a budget when you have a builder involved who can keep you, uh, honest about what your, what your budget is. Because, um, as you mentioned in the email that you, that you pointed out, uh, prices have ballooned significantly. Um, it is expensive to build right now. And there's nothing that a good design professional can do about the cost of a sheet of plywood and, There are just some things that you have to have in your house, no matter how big or small your house is. You're going to build a kitchen. You're going to build a bathroom. Those things are material dense and they have expensive things in them and you have to pay the plumber to come to the site and put it in. So um, you have to have a foundation to hold it up and you have to have a roof to keep it dry. So um, there are some things that, you know, you can't say it might be more expensive per square foot to build a smaller house, but if you're building fewer square feet, it may still be the most cost-effective way to get you to your budget. And to, um, I would say, do all of the research in the upfront because building a house right now, a single family home is probably the most expensive way to provide a house for your family at this time. So, uh, I hope that that answered, people's questions. We could certainly talk about this a million ways from Sunday. This is the four of us, uh, and, and all of our experience on here. There are, I don't even know how many single family residential architects there are out there. And we make up a very small percentage of the actual houses getting built. So definitely, um, wanted to get on here so you could hear uh and throw out a bunch of ideas and i hope that this is helpful to everybody who tuned in this week so thanks for joining us this is a special release of the e3 podcast if you enjoyed today's episode let us know info at matramarch.com i would be happy to do more episodes like this when questions come in that we can answer for everybody who is out there listening thanks for joining me today stay nerdy